This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for October 26, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Since 1933, the United States and Saudi Arabia have held full diplomatic relations with each other, despite one country being a conservative Islamic absolute monarchy, the other a secular constitutional republic. But since the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, relations between the two countries have come into a new light. Joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly to discuss the history of the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, the special relationship between our two countries, and what's next is Aaron David Miller. He is currently Vice President and Middle East Program Director at the Wilson Center here in Washington, an expert on U.S. policy in the Mideast. He answers these questions and proposes what the Trump administration could do moving forward. We begin with a portion of President Trump's remarks in the spring of last year in Riyadh. America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be, or how to worship. Instead, we are here to offer partnership based on shared interests and values. President Trump in Riyadh, May of last year. Aaron David Miller, let's begin on that point. Your reaction to that significant speech by President Trump? You know, it's not just his view of Saudi Arabia. It pertains to, or maybe it's a variation or an aspect of America first. He's clearly uh, made a judgment that national sovereignty is a critically important issue, both for the United States and for other countries around the world. And it seems he has very little desire or intention to intercede, interfere in the internal events of of other countries. And he's created a frame of reference, I think, even though his predecessors also uh, had very difficult times reconciling American values and interests, a frame in which he's kind of emptied the moral and ethical dimension of American foreign policy from the pursuit of American interests. And that certainly is the case with Saudi Arabia. We'll talk about recent events in just a moment, but first, let's take a step back. In order to best understand Saudi Arabia as Americans, what do we need to know? Well, here's the thing. In order to best understand any country, we have to uh, understand uh, that it it can't be done or understood through an American filter. We're in a highly privileged position of having non-predatory neighbors to our north and south and fish to our east and west when one historian, I wish it had been me, described as our liquid assets. And these liquid assets, these two oceans, really define much about the way we approach the world. It it drives, I think, a certain arrogance about American foreign policy because we have a huge margin for error that most countries in the world, including Saudi Arabia, does not. It drives our naivete. I think we don't really understand what the small power, how the small power views the world. And it, it, to a large degree, has freed us from two forces that the Saudis, the Israelis, and others will never free themselves from, the forces of history on one hand and the forces of geography on the other. So I would begin with the assumption not to judge, uh, at least in terms of the analysis, try to understand a desert kingdom uh, united by its founder, eponymous founder, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, uh, in the 30s, the discovery of oil, uh, first by British, then American companies, uh, created an inextricable link 
uh, between Saudi Arabia uh, and the West, uh, a traditional, highly traditional tribal society with, with a pretty opaque political system driven by the royal family and Abdulaziz's sons and daughters, of course, uh, which created a uh, set of princes um, that would have made Game of Thrones proud, 5,000, uh, and a, a, a set of succession process, processes, which is guaranteed, with some exception, uh, in 1964, the forced abdication of one um, Saudi king, and in 1975, the assassination of another, uh, a, a relatively, given the volatile neighborhood in which the Saudis live, um, relatively stable um, pol- uh, polity, and with whom, with which the United States has maintained ever since FDR had that historic meeting with Abdulaziz ibn Saud at Great Bitter Lakes in 1945. Roosevelt was sick and on his way home from Yalta, but enthralled and, and um, I, I think, excited by the prospects of his rendezvous uh, in the desert. And it was that relationship um, solidified uh, by these two men. Roosevelt would give Abdulaziz a wheelchair, which is quite an in- interesting gift, um, solidified a relationship that has become extremely important to the United States over the course of the last almost eight decades, but increasingly very complicated. As this relationship has solidified, to use your words, let's go back and, and hear what historian and author Sir Martin Gilbert, who has since passed away, said about Adolf Hitler and the Arab world. From the mid-30s, from 1936 on, Hitler and his propaganda sections made a great effort to win over the Arab peoples of the Middle East. Explain that part of history. Well, I think that during the 30s, the rise of <clears throat> Nazi Germany and the projection of the uh, potential projection of German and Italian power, the Italians were already there in North Africa, um, created a certain amount of threat perception on the part of the British. Uh, and the Arab territories which they controlled. I I think the Nazis also, in many respects, offered um, a certain kind of propaganda and anti-Semitism which uh, keyed into um, Arab sensitivity and opposition to what was then growing um, Jewish immigration into Palestine, then controlled by, by the British, and there, are, there was a very close relationship that developed between the Palestinian mufti, Hajamin al-Husseini, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and the Nazis, particularly uh, Adolf Hitler. Let me share with you what two U.S. presidents have said about Saudi Arabia. First, back in 1962, President John Kennedy. Relations between your country and this country have been close and cordial. And it is my hope that as a result of your visit here to Washington on this occasion, that those relations will become even closer during the days and years to come. So, Your Majesty, I can assure you of a warm welcome here in Washington and in the United States to you, to the members of your family who accompany you, to the members of your government. And we express the hope that this visit will be only one of a series which will mark ever-increasingly intimate relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Your Majesty, you're most welcome here. Aaron David Miller, that was February 1962. 
first Saudi king to visit the United States, but not the first set of royals. It was actually sons of Abdulaziz who came, <clears throat> I think, as early as 1943 for an extended tour of the United States. So this connection, um, and it, it's fascinating because the two, quote-unquote, special relationships that the United States developed with Middle Eastern countries uh, in countries in the region um, roughly emerged at the same time, the special relationship with Saudi Arabia and the special relationship with the state of Israel. Even though their interests were very different, um, the Americans succeeded over time in keeping both those relationships pretty, pretty sound and compartmentalized with one another. But again, this really was a relationship uh, based not just on national interests for many years, but on relationships between personalities, kings and presidents, if you will. And that t- that um, mode was set uh, back in 1945 during the initial meeting between Abdulaziz, or as he is more commonly known, Ibn Saud, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Twelve years after that visit, in 1974, his last major foreign policy trip, two months before he resigned the presidency, Richard Nixon on the South Lawn of the White House as he prepared a Middle East trip that included Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. This trip will take us to a part of the world that has known nothing but war over the past 30 to 40 years. And as we go to five countries, four of which have never been visited by an American president before, we realize that one trip is not going to solve differences that are very deep, that go back in some cases many years and in some cases centuries. But we also realize that a beginning has to be made. As a great philosopher once said, the beginning is often the most important part of the work. And the beginning has been made toward a different relation and a better relation between the nations in that area. June 1974. Yeah, obviously Nixon's last foreign trip. Middle East was an uh, an area of great fascination to President Nixon and to his uh, first national security advisor and then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. It's fascinating because those comments come after a very tumultuous period beginning in 1973 with the October 73 war in which the Egyptians and, 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 and the Syrians launched a surprise attack against the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula. During that period, the Americans were very active. Uh, Saudi Arabia also imposed an oil embargo, which was the first major crisis, I, I, I guess you would say, between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And during that period, um, President Nixon played a critical role in not only getting the embargo eased, but uh, empowering Secretary of State Kissinger to broker three disengagement agreements, two between Israel and Egypt and one between Israel and Syria, which would eventually set the uh, both the tone and lay the foundation for what became the Egyptian-Israeli uh, peace process. So the consummate foreign policy president on his last foreign tour, and as he mentioned, four out of the five countries uh, he broke new ground in by visiting as an American president. You mentioned the oil embargo, which led to higher gas prices. I remember that prices went up to a buck a gallon in the late 1970s, which was a big story back then. And the gas lines continued through the Carter administration. Let's listen to how PBS's McNeil Lair report showcased the gas shortages from Queens, New York. As has become common in many states in the east, cars have been lining up before dawn. By the time the pumps opened, many had been waiting two and three hours for gas. 
I've been here since 4.30 this morning. It's ridiculous waiting online here. I couldn't get gas uh, Tuesday. The block was about, uh, the line was about eight blocks long. It was ridiculous. It was unbelievable waiting online. I can't take it anymore. I've been carpooling. It's my turn to get gas. Thank God I'm able to get gas today. I don't care how much it costs. I just got to get gas. Got to get to work. People are very desperate. They depend an awful lot upon their cars. And uh, it seems to be no limit to how far they'll go to keep driving that car. I thought my husband would be able to get gas. He came here at 20 after 5. And uh, he called me at 6 that I should come out and take over because he's got to go to work. And that's what I did. And I'm here where the car is here since uh, 20 after 5. From the McNeil Air News Hour on PBS, that was in 1979. And Aaron David Miller, some political scientists attribute that as one factor that led to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. I mean, no, no doubt uh, that um, when the American public is focused on foreign policy, foreign policy issues that actually generate domestic um, consequences, uh, that there is sometimes a price for politicians, presidents to to pay at the polls. It's interesting also to note, though, that um, uh, as oil was one of the two adhesives that glued the um, the American Saudi relationship together. Uh, as we move forward in the story, we see that the <clears throat> growing production, particularly as a consequence of fracking, despite the environmental consequences, and American production ramping up has essentially um, created a situation where the United States is no longer dependent on Arab hydrocarbons, particularly Saudi oil. I think we 5% of our imports are now from Saudi Arabia, between six and 800,000 barrels a day, and there will come a, a time when we will be com- totally self-sufficient. At the same time, Steve, it doesn't free us from the issue of energy uh, security because the rest of the world uh, is still dependent on Arab oil and on the 30 to 40 percent that flow through the states of Hormuz, which gives the United States still a strategic interest uh, and a need to maintain this relationship with uh, with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. As we saw with the headlines, the so-called Davos in the desert uh, this past week, why is it so important for Wall Street investors, business executives, to do business with Saudi Arabia? Just how much money do they have? Well, the Saudi Sovereign Investment Fund, I think, has anywhere from 250 to $400 billion. And you are you now see a Saudi regime, particularly under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman, who was in the United States for three weeks earlier this year, visiting Silicon Valley, um, <clears throat> connecting with CEOs of major companies, including um, uh, Hollywood producers, uh, that there is plenty of money to be made in the Saudi kingdom and plenty of money to be invested by the Saudis in the United States. And I, I think this this uh, financial connection is appears to be so important that uh, not the key CEOs. You had the uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi uh, put a damper on high level participation in the so called uh, Future Investment Initiative Conference or Davos in the Desert. But the fact that so many still attended, the fact that the Crown Prince when he appeared. 
uh, in a surprise uh, visit to the conference, uh, warranted a standing ovation from those in attendance, suggests the, still the power of, of Saudi influence and money. He's referred to as MBS. What do you know about him? How did he attain his power? What is he like? Uh, I've never met him. I've talked to people who have. A large man, very charismatic. English is actually pretty good. Um, Determined to create a different vision for his country, Vision 2030, which is an effort to wean Saudi Arabia off of a single source of income, namely namely hydrocarbons. Uh, He's also brought a fair measure of reform, uh, institutionalized women driving, uh, crackdown on the relig- the Mutawin, the religious police, uh, and has uh, at least putatively made a, 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 a decision to sort of walk back some of the more extremist strains of Wahhabist Islam, the brand that the Saudis practice as guardians of the two holiest places in Islam, Mecca and Medina. The problem is that, uh, and I think there are many who were swayed uh, and wooed by his, by the fact that he, he he emerged as a different sort of Saudi leader, risk-ready instead of risk-averse, breaking with consensus, talking about the state of Israel and the importance of Israeli-Palestinian peace, sending all kinds of signals that he was prepared to create a more open environment in the kingdom. But a lot of this masked a much darker authoritarian trend line, a ruthlessness, if you will. Uh, And the killing of Jamal Khashoggi uh, was only the latest step in a series of um, reckless policies pursued by the crown prince, MBS, uh, which I think uh, arguably people should have paid much more attention to. Yes, he permitted women to drive, but he also then arrested uh, the several women activists who were pioneers in the movement, uh, and along with numerous journalists and civil society activists, Raif Badawi, a well-known Saudi blogger, is in jail, sentenced to a thousand lashes and ten years in prison. And the Saudis participated in rendition, actually grabbing one of the premier women uh, activists, Saudi activists, off the streets of um, Dubai to bring her back and put her in prison. Not to mention a disastrous boycott of Qatar, which has split the Gulf Cooperation Council. Uh, we maintain our most important military base in the Gulf, Al-Udaid, from which we stage most of our operations out of Qatar. And I, I think most graphically and tragically, a war in Yemen, which is now perceived as the Crown Prince's War since 2015 when he was Minister of Defense and not yet um, anointed or made crown prince, uh, a war that has taken an already failed or failing state and devastated it with 30 to 40 percent, millions of people suffering food insecurity or worse, cholera outbreaks that have claimed the lives of thousands and an air campaign, which just yesterday um, uh, um, struck a, an open-air market, which resulted in the death of 19 people, including children. A war for what? What's well, the purpose? Yemen is in Saudi Arabia's backyard, and Yemen has always been a source of um, concern and, and, and instability for the Saudis, and they all, all had always demonstrated uh, the, the need to, be, to, 
to be first among equals to ensure that their southern border uh, was protected. You had emerge uh, in 2014 um, Houthi movement. Um, they're not Sunni Muslims. Uh, they moved from their base in Sada to literally taking over the capital of Yemen, Sana'a. Uh, they've been assisted and aided by the Iranians, even though, by and large, this is a local problem that has a lot to do with power struggles. Um, opened up with with the uh, Arab Spring and the death of the Saudi, uh, excuse me, the Yemeni president, uh, uh, <clears throat> Salah. And I think uh, the Saudis now have determined that they cannot yield to what they see as an Iranian hand. And to be fair, the uh, the Iranians and the Houthis uh, have uh, using uh, former Scud missiles uh, that belong to the Yemeni military have launched at least 100 uh, of these missiles, not terribly accurate, at Saudi Arabia over the course of the last two years. So there is, there is a, a legitimate Saudi security issue in Yemen, but the Saudis have made the situation only worse by um, their air campaign, which we are enabling, which began in the Obama administration in an effort to uh, placate the Saudis over the agreement that um, Barack Obama signed, the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear agreement, signed with the Iranians, which were, concerned the Saudis. And it's been ramped up and accelerated under the Trump administration. And I, I think Congress has taken a great interest in this. Um, it came, They came within four votes of, of imposing a restriction on American military assistance as a consequence of their concern over civilian deaths and casualties as a consequence of errant um, American munitions, which the Saudis are using um, to target Houthi leaders and and bases. Um, far too many civilians have been killed in this war, and it's now been described by the United Nations as the greatest humanitarian disaster in the world today. And, of course, American fighter jets made by Lockheed and Boeing but let's turn to the headlines of the last three weeks. This has been an international story, but it's been a personal one for you. You know, Jamal Khashoggi was due to come to the Wilson Center in the fall as a visiting Arab journalist. I didn't know Jamal as well as many of my colleagues, but if you were interested in Saudi Arabia um, or, or an astute, clear, and honest assessment of the region, you would turn to Jamal. He was easy to get to know, irreverent, great sense of humor and tremendous courage. He put a premium on two things that I think were, are missing, certainly in the, air, in the Arab world and its journalism with state-controlled press and media, and that is clarity and honesty. And it, it's, it's uh, really quite striking that um, my colleague David Ottaway, a former Washington Post correspondent, said that Jamal may have achieved in death what he was unable to achieve in life. And it, it's funny, his death, um, even against the backdrop of thousands of, of dead Yemenis, has focused the United States, Europe, and the entire international community on many of the excesses and the reckless policies of the Crown Prince um, MBS. Uh, and you've seen the way the story has played out. And almost three weeks after Jamal entered that Saudi consulate on October 2nd, never to reappear, we still do not have 
it's stunning to me. We still do not have an accounting of what actually transpired, and we certainly don't have uh, accountability. It seems that the Saudis for sure, the Turks, Mr. Erdogan, who is trying to milk this crisis for all it's worth, and even the Trump administration, there seems to be an absence of urgency among all of these parties to actually understand what happened and then to take appropriate reaction. So I, I wish I, I could make a sound prediction on where this is going, but I can't. So I guess the question is why? If the crown prince was involved, if the Saudi government was involved, what was behind the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and what is the future of the crown prince? I think I think they targeted Jamal for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was actively engaged, uh, not just in writing columns for the Washington Post, which were very powerful, and I, I might argue, con- I, I would argue, very constructive. He encouraged MBS's reforms. He understood his country, and he was above all a Saudi nationalist and a patriot. He understood they needed they needed to be reformed, but he was also alarmed by the growing authoritarianism and ruthlessness, the crackdown on all dissent, and that I think um, troubled him the most. And he was actively involved in efforts to uh, stop Saudi trolling on the internet, to create a uh, a sort of uh, a democratic movement. Uh, a foundation that would promote democracy not only in Saudi Arabia, but throughout the region. Remember, this is one guy. But the other reality is Jamal was not a dissident in the sense that he was some outlier. He worked within the Saudi system for decades. He was close to Saudi intelligence, to Prince Turki, who was head of Saudi intelligence at one point and ambassador to Washington. Um He was editor of at least two Saudi dailies, which were government-sponsored, so I think they they feared him in part because he generated he had a certain legitimacy that a, an outlier uh, and someone who was outside of the system did not have and I think the combination of those two things plus his attacks on uh, Mohammed bin Salman personally uh, created a situation the hypersensitivity and almost a paranoia to brook no dissent, no opposition. But even now, Steve, when I think about what the Saudis actually did, it it strains the bounds of any rational analysis almost to, to the breaking point, to actually create an operation which, which was designed, now the Saudis have admitted today, uh, premeditated murder of a Saudi citizen on Turkish soil in a Saudi consulate. And then if any of the stories Turks claim to have an audio tape are true, the horrific fate uh, in in the first hour that Jamal suffered in that consulate, it, it, it goes beyond, I think, a, 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 a rational explanation. You said, quote, the president's Saudi policies... Let's MBS thinking get away with murder. How so? You know, the the killing of Jamal Khashoggi is not on the Trump administration. I mean, let's be very clear. Um, Whether the Saudis, whether the crown prince ordered this, had foreknowledge. um, And and I think to risk such an operation, I think uh, no one would have done it without sanction, without approval from the top of the Saudi leadership. 
Um, I I think it's it's just in in a way um, difficult to know what the consequences are going to be for MBS in particular. I can't imagine that um, he will be able to escape a pariah status in certain circles in the West. Uh, his brother, who's the ambassador, is now in Riyadh. Uh, his foreign minister, Adil, uh, Adil Jabir, who was the Saudi ambassador to Washington. It's going to be difficult for the Saudis to repair um, this damage. And yet, despite all of that, it remains a vital strategic ally in the region. It remains a... I, I'm... Do you? I, I would rather call it a security partner. Allies, I suspect, should have common interests and values, should share our common interests and values, not necessarily across the board, but the value proposition is extremely important. But the Saudis need to be punished, uh, I think, through some consequence, not just because they undermined our values by, by killing Jamal Khashoggi, but we need to find a way to recalibrate and reset the relationship. Because frankly, right now, I argue this piece in an Atlantic article, it's out of control in Yemen and Qatar. The dispute with the Canadians, the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister for several days, complete with his own hostage video, the repression um, that the king, that the crown prince has launched and the, that the king has enabled, all of these things undermine both American values and interests. I'm not calling for an abandonment of the relationship. It's very important, uh, but we need we need to make it unmistakably clear that it, this relationship needs balance and it needs reciprocity. So in the end, MBS does not draw the conclusion that he probably did draw from being enabled um, over the last 600 plus days that he could do just about anything without fear of retribution or consequence from uh, from the Trump administration. And you began studying Saudi Arabia when? You know, it's funny because my uh, doctoral dissertation at the University of Michigan was, uh, Michigan was entitled Search for Security, Saudi Arabian Oil and American Foreign Policy. Uh, it was published um, in 1980 by the University of North Carolina Press. So I've had an interest in Saudi Arabia from the beginning and through my work at the State Department uh, over the course of 20, almost 25 years. I traveled there many times uh, and had an interest and, in, frankly, many respects and an admiration for what the Saudis had been able to achieve. Uh, these days, however, I'm uh, freed from the responsibilities and constraints of uh, promoting ideas I don't agree with. I've taken a much more critical look uh, and and am trying to find a way to um, to well create a a line of analysis that enables us to continue a relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia, but under very different circumstances. We will look forward to your upcoming column in the Washington Post. Author Aaron David Miller, a distinguished fellow at the Wilson Center. Thank you for sharing your expertise with C-SPAN. Steve, thank you so much. And a reminder to check out the weekly and all of C-SPAN's podcasts wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.